we did our clowning back then. And we said, Pratt, like, are you, are you sure? Add in the click. The cast itself is a meme. Now back to your regularly scheduled program. If the entire point of a first announcement trailer slash long teaser was to not make it a meme. A surprise, to be sure, but a welcome one. Everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of Plot Devices. It's spooky season. Finally, we made it to October. It's the best time for plot devices and everything else. I am one of your hosts, Brandon King, alongside my far scarier but kinder co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how you feeling? Scarier vibes, all true. Um, this is an exciting month on my whiteboard calendar. It is Spooktober, so that is officially what this month should be called from now on. What, would um, you uh, would you call it Plottober? I like that. Plottober. But I wanted to mention a couple of things that I have been busying myself with this week. Okay, for one, there's a movie that kind of flew over the radar, or I guess under the radar? Brandon and I had actually missed it, but we were talking about this new title, the animation title on Netflix, Enter Galactic. So I busied yes. myself with watching that this week and really admiring Kid Cudi's work being kind of like sewn into that story. The animation is reminiscent of like Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, Brandon has not seen it yet, but once he knocks it out, uh, we might have a conversation about it here on the pod. Um, Brandon, I blame he- Netflix. Netflix, we riot, but how come? Because Netflix is bad at promoting, and I kept hearing it was going to come out at some point. And because it's not officially a movie classification, it's, it's basically a movie, but it's not classified as one. So I never saw it on any of my updates until a couple days ago, and all of a sudden everyone was like, Intergalactic's so good. And I was like, it's out? Right? You have a cast that includes Ty Dolla Sign, Timothy Chalamet, um, Scott Muscutty, like I Jessica said. Jessica Williams. Jessica Williams, Vanessa Hudgens, and... This is the type of film that you'd expect a trailer for that literally lists all those names because of the notoriety that they have. But no, you know, I think I saw a couple, not even ads, but just posts about it on Twitter. And that's how I knew it was coming out. And then boom, it was released. But yeah, checking out that film, um, Overwatch 2 dropped. So for any of the gamers, I am in the Overwatch 2 verse um, on my Xbox Series X. And I'm having a hell of a good time there. Is it as hard to get in, into Overwatch 2 as everyone's been saying it has? Yes, the film dropped the film. The game dropped, I think, on Monday or something like that. And the first game I played, I think, was Thursday night because of all of the server issues. And Overwatch 2 didn't just become a new game that you had to install. It, like, overlapped on top of Overwatch the original Origins Edition. I have no idea what Blizzard is doing. I just know that they were having some kind of trouble. They uh, shared a posts that they had been hacked or they were getting attacked and that's why all these service issues had happened but i'm happy to finally be in a game for anyone who's still waiting hang on tight but overwatch 2 that's that's the game i'll be busy with. i'll be playing a lot i've not played much of the original but i know it gets very addictive very fast uh much like marvel content transition time really big marvel news this past week because whatever reason i guess d23 just didn't matter um although this first piece actually kind of poked fun at it so we can't you know give that much flack to it uh as I'm sure has been on top of many of your minds, uh, in a video released initially on Ryan Reynolds' Twitter account, Hugh Jackman has been officially confirmed to reprise his role as Logan, a.k.a. Wolverine, in the upcoming Deadpool 3, and everyone was happy, seemingly. There's a lot of questions around it. We also received a September 6, 2024 release date, 
for the project directed by both Reynolds and Jackman's favorite frequent collaborator, Sean Levy, which we just reviewed their work in The Atom Project earlier this year, if you want to go check that out on the channel. Black Panther Wakanda Forever also gave us their second full-length trailer last week. Uh, it gives us a better look into the stakes Wakanda will face, and better looks at both Tanakh Puerta's uh, Namor, the wings, we got the wings, uh, and a currently unknown person in the Black Panther suit. We'll talk about that. Wakanda Forever is set to conclude Phase 4 of the MCU this year on November 11th. Speaking of November of this year, that was when Blade, the new um, incarnation starring Mahershala Ali, was supposed to go into production. That's not going to happen anymore, because uh, Blade has lost director Bassam Tariq. He is staying on as an executive producer. He is hoping for the best for the project. Apparently, parted ways on pretty good terms. Uh, Bo DeMeo, who is best known for his work on Star Trek Distant Worlds and the upcoming X-Men 97, aka the continuation of the X-Men animated series, he is going to rewrite the films from scratch, uh, and Mahershala Ali is still attached to Star. Finally, two pieces of Avengers news we should talk about. Michael Waldron, who some of you might know best for his work on Loki Season 1 and the recent Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, he is going to be writing the upcoming Avengers Secret Wars, though we still don't have a director attached at this point. But despite Marvel's insistence, we can now hear it from the man himself. Destin Daniel Cretton personally confirmed that he is going to direct Avengers The Kang Dynasty, which is going to be the movie right before that. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania's Jeff Loveless is going to be writing that film set for May 2nd, 2025, with Avengers Secret Wars following, I believe, just a couple months afterwards. Uh, Noah, what among all of these kind of stuck out to you and rubbed your brain in, uh, in an MCU fandom kind of way? Deadpool 3, this time with co-star, co-hero, who's very <laughs> tired, tried and true. I'm sorry, I'm talking Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. The last time we saw Jackman's Wolverine was in Logan. Dark Phoenix, was he not running through it or something like that? No, you're thinking Apocalypse. Apocalypse. So did that come before or after? Regardless of where it, of where it lies, Wolverine, I had thought we'd like... We shut the coffin on Jackman's run as the character, but Jackman back in the role of Wolverine, this time alongside Reynolds as um, the Merc with the mouth. I don't have any kind of negative reactions to this. I feel that Reynolds' projects outside of Deadpool have gotten, I would say, repetitive, and I just it doesn't get me as excited to know that he's attached to a project that is not Deadpool unless he like shakes it up with some different character. Free Guy surprised me. I was really I was a big fan of Free Guy. Um, I got to say, I'm very happy that Wolverine's going to be tagging along with him. Do I know at all what they're going to do if he's just going to be a hilarious cameo? But I mean, this is a callback all the way to the first Deadpool where he's literally wearing Hugh Jackman's face in the finale when he is talking about uh, his love with, I think the character's name is Vanessa. Uh, do you have strong thoughts about Jackman returning? A little bit, yeah. I actually went into depth a bit on this on Sky Merida's uh, podcast on No Kids Required, so go check that out on his channel uh, again over on Spotify. On the one hand, the video is super cute, and, like, knowing that Hugh and Ryan and Sean are, like, best buddies, like, you're gonna tell that there's, there's gonna be a lot of fun in this week. As we kind of went over within our, um, in our Free Guy and Adam Project review, at least for me, Sean Levy is a guy who knows how to work audiences, how to kind of play with expectations and give kind of that triumphant blockbuster appeal to it all, and I have no doubt he'll do that for Deadpool 3. That being said, I adore Logan so much, and the character of Hugh Jackman's Wolverine means the world to me as a fan. I love the idea of having that chapter finally close and Hugh seemed like he had moved on from the role. Obviously, you know, everyone has their price and I'm sure Kevin Feige drove a hard bargain on that. But I know that everyone's kind of said it's going to be, you know, before Logan or it's going to be a different universe. And I, I get it. It's not the same incarnation. It's not going to deter from Logan. And yet I still kind of think that it will because Logan was such a finality for both the character for Reynolds, uh, for Reynolds, for Jackman as a performer and just the idea of that character as a whole. I feel like a life has been lived in that character. And I, I might be exaggerating, but I have conflicted feelings about it. No, that's a perspective I've heard from a couple people as well, just that it kind of tarnishes the, you know, the 
the message that was shared both for Jackman and for the, his iteration as a character Wolverine in that movie, Logan. So once it comes out, once we have more details, uh, I want it to be a, a pleasant surprise. I don't want it to be kind of like, ah, damn, should have stayed in the ground. Um, moving on, I'm so happy and stoked that we have more scenes, more reveals, more just thrill coming out of the Wakanda Forever trailer. We have the Noche Huertas, Namor, now with wings on his feet as the mutant has. And it's coming to me more and more that Namor is straight up the villain in this film. Like, I can't look at him and, like, cheer on for, like, seeing my Latino, like, be represented in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, sure, I can do that, but then I put it in the scope of what it is in the MCU, and it's his attack on Wakanda. At least that's what the trailer uh, provides for us so far. And I'm honestly scared. I'm scared for um uh, the Queen Mother, whose name uh, slips my mind right now. You know who I'm not scared, though, for is the new Black Panther dropping out of that ship. She, and I say she because this is a suit. I mean, it's fitting for, we know there's a woman underneath it, but the question is who? The question is, who is it going to be? Do we have Shuri? Is it going to be Okoye? Is it going to be... um Kayla Cole's character? I'm thinking about Lupita Nyong'o as well. Oh, uh, Nakia, yeah. I think it's Ayo. I think it's Nakia. Oh, like you said, Michaela Cole is joining the cast for this film. So we'll see if she dons the suit. Maybe even Riri Williams. Who knows? We got Riri Williams. We have the first look at Ironheart in this trailer as well. The box suit, the the first like suit that Iron Man wore in the desert is like, this is going to be hopefully her like kind of trinket suit, right? I think my last note is just that um, I'll, I'll be short on the Blade one. And that's that Blade grabbing a new um, director and like, just having these changes happen so close to when production was supposed to begin reminds me of the worry that I, that has been boiling throughout this phase four. And that is where is Marvel's focus? You know, can we all remain uh, as cohesive with our storytelling as like the, the earlier phases of Marvel was maybe it's lost. Maybe this is the new world we live in, but I'm not sure whether blade is going to, I want him to be a strong player, but with these changes being made, I'm kind of like reluctant to just be like rallying behind it. Michael Waldron though, coming back for Avengers secret wars. This is uh, the creator or credited as the creator on low key season one. Yes. Wrote for Dr. Strange, the multiverse of madness. Um, Some episodes of Rick and Morty, as well as creating another show. Um, I want to say based on the work that Waldron has completed in the past, it doesn't leave room for me to doubt that he can tell us like a compelling story um, with secret wars, having the, all of the convoluted mess of like worlds colliding or like uh, coming to the point of collapse. I I hope I'm right in saying that I can trust how he would apply that to the script, that it won't just sound like kind of just like workshop mess. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about Wakanda forever for a bit. Um, this trailer is, is, is still like great. Uh, it's not the first trailer. It doesn't have that emotional gut punch between the music and the images of that first trailer, but it continues the hype cycle they've been leaving. And I, again, going back to like Thor, Love and Thunder, I was worried when that marketing came so late and the fact that Marvel's is still keeping that approach of like, we're going to start the marketing like two months out. I still don't love that approach. I think you can drag it out just a bit more, but still, this is a great second trailer. Obviously, uh, Tenos Huerta looks great. I'm sure we're going to see a lot of nuance for his character. I'm not expecting like a Wen Wu or Hela type complication, but it very well could be like Namor has that darker tendency from the comics that you could very easily bring into stuff like this. Obviously, the Black Panther suit is a huge mystery. I kind of hope it's Shuri. I don't love Letitia Wright at this point, but at this point, I think it's just more of a natural fit. I'm hoping that we, you know, I'm, I wonder if we'll change our minds once the movie comes out, but it's a fascinating just piece of that. We won't have to wait too long for that. I think we're going to cover it like three episodes from now, I think, if we wind up getting screening, who knows? 
Which sounds crazy to say, Brandon, that Wakanda Forever is almost here. That's just insane. That phase four is almost done. Like, it feels like it just started. Um, but that's what Pandemic will do you. Um, as far as Blade goes, this is very concerning, actually. Like, your movie's going into production in a month, and suddenly, it, like, this isn't some indie pro- This is the MCU. Like, you get your directors pretty far in advance, and I know this is Disney, and they're dealing with a million plates at once, and we've talked about the idea of Kevin Feige and his team juggling 20 to 25 different projects all at once. You can't keep that for too long. This might be a casualty of that. But then you get into some of the rumors that like, oh, the script wasn't very, you know, action heavy, Marshall. He wasn't very happy with it. And what was this movie going to be versus what they had initially planned and what Bassam was kind of going for? Obviously, him saying on the project is a good thing. We've seen the same thing with uh, Scott Derrickson on the first Doctor Strange movie. So this has happened before. And we got, I think, OK, results of Multiverse of Madness. So we'll see how that turns out. Brandon, uh, to move along throughout our news segment, um, let's talk about some bros. Not talking about bros just yet, but we will talk about the Mario Bros. After months of speculations, fears, questions, we got the first trailer, the Super Mario Bros. movie. It's here. They did a whole social media live stream announcement that I was not there to watch, but apparently Chris Pratt talked about killing Koopas in the first game, which you can't actually do. This is a whole weird thing. But while it is not a full story trailer... It does give us our first proper look into several aspects of the film, including Illumination's animation approach, the humor, some of the stakes, and the shattering of the collective consciousness with Chris Pratt's take on the Mario voice, which I'm sure we'll talk about. The film is now moved up. It is now set for an April 7th, 2023 release date, so we won't wait actually that long for it. And we'll also feature the voices of Anya Taylor-Joy, Charlie Day, Seth Rogen, Keegan-Michael Key, and of course, Jack Black as Bowser. Noah, there have been so many expectations on this trailer. What did you think? The world itself looks like it, it is pulled straight from those Mario games. I just, we have Bowser's Castle. If you haven't seen the trailer, I think you're going to want to watch it in order to get what the heck I'm about to say. Um, but Bowser's like kingdom as it floats into this ice like landscape. It feels lived in. It feels um, familiar for fans of this like empire that is the Nintendo Mario um, space. The worlds, like I said, look amazing. The voice acting. I mean, let's talk about the entire cast here. We have Jack Black as Bowser, and he's kind of, like, knocking it out of the park, in my opinion. I'm excited to hear Anya Taylor-Joy's Peach, because we did not get that this trailer. We did get Keegan-Michael Key as Toad, you know, a very, like, sporadic, like, wants to, you know, I guess he came across as, like, the Toad character wanting to protect this world from any kind of um, disturbances that Pratt's Mario might bring. Um, But... All that is to lead into the the point that's been, I think, beaten to death on social media. Like, we've talked about it before. I think when there was announcements for this film with Pratt's attachment, we did our clowning back then. And we said, Pratt, like, really? Like, are you, are you sure? Adding the click. Am I surprised? I'm not surprised, Brandon. What I am surprised, though, is all of the outlets really, like, putting it out there with the headline, you know, Pratt's voice finally revealed for character Mario, right? Like, it's like they are kind of opening the gates for these types of conversations and comments to flood in, because I think it's what they know the majority of people are going to criticize it for. What were your thoughts after watching that? Uh, Honestly, it's a teaser. I'll say this. I agree with most of your positives. Like, the world looks great like between the ice castle the way the bowser's ship of sorts comes crashing down and everything the actual mushroom kingdom around it like a lot of it looks good and like looks textured and as we said before lived in uh jack black sounds great as bowser as does uh kevin michael richardson as kamek and carrie payton as um the the penguin king or whatever but i find that interesting that we're having a lot of conversations around line about 
you know, obviously it's Chris Pratt and Charlie Day and non-voice actor types, but there are still accomplished voice actors within this. So I find it a very interesting mixture. We did not hear who Charles Martinet is going to be playing. He's going to be popping up in this as not the original voice of Mario, but he will be playing something else in this. Um, and then you get to Pratt's voice and it's fine. And I will admit the trailer is a bit too short for me to make a full judgment on it. But if the entire point of a first announcement trailer slash long teaser was to not make it a meme, well, mission accomplished. Brandon, I do have a little bit of hesitation here because I don't want this Mario character in this film to be a Mario discovering this world. Because we see him pop out of the pipe and you think, where is he coming from? Yeah, he starts to look at everything with such awe and wonder that it makes me go, no, Mario, Mario lives in these worlds. Like, this is the world. This is his land. You know, this is his, um, his playground. So I, I really want that version of the character to come out, have that, that comfort of him in this world be known off the bat or maybe first quarter in. But if it's kind of like the defining moment or the climax where Mario realizes that he is the hero of this world, it's kind of going to be a bummer because I'm like, no, Mario should already be that, be that hero. Because we only see Luigi at the very end, but the movie is called The Mario Bros. Are we going to see Luigi as a co-lead in this? We have to. There's no Super Mario Bros. without my man, without my green man Luigi and my red guy Mario standing right side by side, right? Yeah, because if it was, it would just be called The Mario Movie, but it's not. It's not. And it's not the Mario and Toad movie or like the Mario in a, in a penguin costume movie. It seems like a penguin, so... The Penguins are going to have a heavy presence, I hope, because they were adorable in this trailer. They were fun. But however they wrap this up and however they put it together and push it out to us, I'm actually really surprised that I enjoyed it. So, yes, Pratt is going to be like a <laughs> – it'll be an effort to get through, but uh, I'm not going to let that taint this kind of experience that I'm that I'm hoping for, for the, you know, the inner uh, child in me who, who played those Mario games and who always grew familiar with these characters and these worlds. Favorite Mario game off the top of your head? It doesn't have to be platformers. It could be any Mario incarnation. These are just from fond memories, I think, around like middle school to beginning of high school. But it was the first, I think, four-player Super Mario Bros. off of the Wii. Because I think Super Mario Bros. Wii was for the Wii U. So it must have been new Super Mario Bros. And you had Toad, Golden Toad, and, of course, the Mario Brothers. And that game, I have a lot of fond memories of playing on the couch with, like like I said, high school friends and all of us just having a good time. So that's going to be my favorite. How about you? Super Mario Bros. for the DS, I played the ever-living goblet out of that game. Uh, Mario Kart Double Dash will always have a place in my heart. It's absolutely the best kart, in my opinion. Let's move on to our final piece of news for today. If you guys remember from our catch-up episode, this is actually the first of two instances we're mentioning that episode, this episode, I know. Uh, we've talked about SS Raja Muli's groundbreaking international success, RRR. Uh, it took Indian audiences and, inter- and international film nerds by storm. Uh, and now he and his team have their sights set on the Oscars, and it looks like it could theoretically happen. Variance Films and the RRR team took to social media over the week and announced they have submitted for your consideration campaigns, which means they will get copies to Academy voters and all the people who are involved in the Academy Awards to, uh, for all major, for all major categories, including Best Director for Raja Muli and Best Picture. Here is the official statement from RRR's Twitter page. We apply to the Academy of Oscars consideration of the general categories. We wish our RRR family the best and thank them from the bottom of our hearts for making this possible. Here is to continue to win hearts and entertain audiences worldwide. Uh, again, RRR currently sitting as the fourth highest grossing Indian film of all time, 1,200 crore, which is around uh, $150 million in U.S. gross. Apologies if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Uh, after the release of the Hindi dub on Netflix, it became an international success, including here on our show, Noah if you had to peg what awards this could possibly be in contention for, like, realistically... I gotta say, 
in my experience watching RRR, Triple R, I do I think it carries the kind of like weight or maybe like overall just like storming of audiences that Parasite had for it to win Best Picture. I guess I'm just less hopeful there. I mean, I think that this is a strong contender um, looking at the film as a whole and what it achieved either with um, the real like human bodies that were there for these massive dance numbers that we remember seeing or uh, action sequences that belong in or that are reminiscent of like these huge uh, ones that we've seen in American cinema. If we can get a Best Director nom for Rajamouli, I absolutely think it's deserving. It's interesting. It could get in for VFX. I don't know if it deserves it. Um, it, The VFX are great. They're doing for what they are. That category, as you said, top of my head, is not that packed for this year. Obviously, Avatar, Top Gun, like there are contenders in there, but it could sneak its way in there. Uh, Costuming could easily get in there. Director, you're absolutely right. He could. The Oscars has done this thing where in the past couple of years, they've snuck international filmmakers in there, whether it's uh, Paolo Pulaski or Bon Joon-ho or... um, Oh, the guy who did another round, I'm forgetting his name, but they keep doing that every once in a while where they keep sneaking those names in. And it's really cool to see as far as like fans go, but I don't know how willing they are to do that, especially for South Asian cinema, which they just haven't really been that open to. I think I read somewhere that even with international film, I think there have only been like half a dozen or so Indian slash South Asian features that have been nominated at the Academy Awards before. That being said, there is one category it could very much get into, and I am sending all of my energy to make it happen. Best original song for Not Do Not Do. Where does this one pop up? So that's the big dance battle sequence when they're at the fancy party. Yes, I was I was thinking that that's on what it is where it was. That one is magnificent. It's not only a fantastic song. It's not only a fantastic performance, although it is. Uh, and I'm sure most of you, even if you haven't seen the film, have seen a clip of it somewhere online. But the best original song category, all of the awards pundits who I follow have basically the same reaction. Original song is not that stacked this year. So. Not only could it be in, but remember, all original song nominees, unless your name Ben Morrison, get to perform their song at the Academy Awards. So we could theoretically get an RRR Not Do Not Do performance at the Academy Awards. And you cannot imagine how badly I want this. I want this so, 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 so much more than I, do, you, than I do the Maverick song from gaga forgive me gaga fans i am a monster just like you but i think when it comes to just like yeah overall i think just appeal that i got out of its inclusion in the movie that's absolutely an award i would love to see it get nommed and possibly swipe it out the hands of whatever potential contenders against it so hopefully six months from now we will be cheering on not to not do at the oscar so make it happen darn it Let's move on to our quick hit section of the show. This is the portion where we each take one news topic that we maybe didn't have enough time for a full five, six minute discussion, but we want to give you guys it in a right around a minute tight uh, cohesive segment. Noah, I will toss it over to your segment first and foremost. Thank you so much, Brandon. I will go ahead and kick off my quick hit in three, two, one. Hello, everybody. I am talking to the horror fans of Mike Flanagan. Maybe you've seen Dr. Sleep. Maybe you've seen Midnight Mass. Maybe you've heard of the upcoming series, The Midnight Club. And guess what? It just broke a Guinness Book of World Records. 
What's the record? It is the most jump scares in a single episode. So there's an episode in this new Netflix series, The Midnight Club, called The Final Chapter, and it has 21 jump scares. So a representative from the Guinness Book of World Records presented the award to Flanagan and his team with a certificate for the accomplishment. Uh, what is this Midnight Club show that I speak of? It is a new adapted work from Flanagan based off of a YA novel that I will possibly plug for this episode because I don't have time to look it up now. Um, but it's a Netflix series that centers around eight kids who are living in a hospice um, center, or I guess they're all, uh, you know, hospice patients. And every night they come together to exchange ghost stories or scary stories. And you'll just have to watch it and find out like what really comes of those stories. Time. Um, I've heard a lot about Midnight Club. You haven't uh, gotten into any of it. No, because it hasn't dropped yet, has it? It actually dropped while we're speaking of this today, October 8th. Yeah, I believe it is all completely streaming on Netflix. I am definitely going to check it out. I mean, it's got the word midnight in it, and it's directed in part by Flanagan, so I'll be tuning in. Or, you know, when I think about Flanagan's work, he kind of does tend to have, you know, all hands on his projects. So the fact that this one, he has a co-director for certain episodes, I'd be curious to see, like, where this leans. Like, is he going to go as dark as he has done in the past? Or because it's based off a YA novel, can we kind of guess, like, what the extremities of this show will be? All right, on to mine in three, two. So if you guys remember our catch-up episode, hey, that's the second time I foreshadowed we've talked about that. Uh, we also reviewed Richard Linklater's Ode to the Space Race, Apollo 10 and a half, and we both thought, hey, this has some legs in the animated feature category. Apparently not. Uh, there was a recent report from IndieWire that apparently the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, who hopefully will do a great job in nominating RRR several months down the line, apparently won't nominate Apollo 10 and a half for Best Animated Feature because it does not, quote, feel the techniques, uh, the Academy, I should say, does not feel the techniques meet the definition of an animated film in the industry, end quote. Uh, Netflix has filed an appeal, but without any response as of October 7th. Now, both Linklater and director and animation director Tommy Pallotta are speaking out against the decision. Linklater had this to say, the animation industry is clustered around children's entertainment. I get the feeling they're basically saying, get out of here, indie weirdos. Meanwhile, Pallotta followed that up saying, I feel like I've been caught in a Kafka-esque nightmare. Like someone is saying, I, saying what I'm doing isn't real. Uh, and I've been doing rotoscopic animation for 25 years. It's just an insult. Uh, for clarification, Apollo 10 and a half took two years and over 200 animators to actually get off the ground. Uh, the Academy reportedly took issue with the fact that a lot of the backgrounds are rotoscoped, the actual internals are animated. It's a whole thing. We don't have time to get into animation nerd space for right now. For me, this is absolutely ridiculous. I find this kind of insulting to people who worked on this, especially to Linklater, who has been so passionate about rotoscoping development. I'm sorry, I don't like this. Why do we have people drawing drawing lines or drawing a box around what can and, and cannot exist within the animation space. We go back to like a couple of years when everyone's saying, is the Lion King live action animation? Because it's not, there's no live action elements in there. So there is a line there, but Apollo 10 and a half is animated. Like the entire thing doesn't have a live action thing in there. All the live action footage does get animated later on. This is an animated feature. Give them their due. Absolutely. And here on Plot Devices, we stand for all of our animation nerds and our anime nerds. Um, I didn't even love Ten and a Half, but it's the principle of it. No, yeah. I mean, when we covered it, we were both just kind of like, you know, this was this was watchable. This was fine. But it's unfortunate, like you say, for the team to just feel like that work is kind of just being swept up from under them because of it's like it seems circumstantial. We are now going to transition into... Our movie review portion of today's episode, we have two theatrical releases as well as two releases that are available on streaming services that we're going to get into. Uh, we will first start this segment with our discussion, our review, our dissection of Netflix's Blonde. Yeah, we're going to start off fairly dark on this. So if any of you have adverse to any sort of sexual violence or anything like that, 
please just turn away. We'll get to the ratings eventually, because this is not going to be a very fun discussion. Uh, we're talking about Blonde, which is, of course, taken a lot of film nerds by storm. Uh, a lot of the film pop culture discussion by score. This is the newest Marilyn Monroe adaptation slash biopic, I say in quotes, uh, directed by Andrew Dominic, based off the 2000 novel of the same name from Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, we basically follow Marilyn Monroe born Norma Jean Mortensen, played here by Ana de Armas. Uh, she is a young girl in L.A. She has a mentally unstable mother and a seemingly absentee father. There's more to it later on the film, but basically she gets left in an orphanage. We cut then to the 1940s. She's working as a pinup model. And through various machinations, we see her take the name Marilyn Monroe, become sort of the icon that we know her as, but with a very, very dark undercurrent to it all. She's subject to a lot of mental breakdowns of her own. She has a lot of issues with miscarriages and being a potential mother and what her mother means to her. Uh, a lot of issues within the Hollywood system at the time. Uh, tumultuous relationships with everyone uh, from credited the ex-athlete, a.k.a. Joe DiMaggio, played here by Bobby Cannavale, to her eventual husband, uh, Arthur Miller, a.k.a. the playwright, played by Adrian Brody. Uh, we see her relationships with uh, actors like Edward G. Robinson Jr. and Kaz Chaplin, played here by Xavier Samuel and... Um, uh, Evan Williams, and then also, again, the relationship with her mother, um, Gladys, played by Julian Nicholson. Again, this is mostly fictional. It takes the idea of Marilyn Monroe, and we need to establish very quickly, this is a fictionalized idea based on a fictional telling of a real person, so we're just getting that out there. We understand what this movie is. Noah, there has been so much discussion about this movie, uh, from Ana de Armas being apparently miscast to a lot of people, to the very idea of the book, to the the fact that this was going to be the first NC-17 movie that Netflix was actually going to be distributed, I think it might be the first proper NC-17 on any proper American streaming service. What did you think of Blonde at first value? appreciate your comment, Brandon, about this being a fictionalized retelling of this, you know, Monroe character. For myself, watching this movie, I'm going to say it felt like less of a movie connected with a beginning, middle, and end for Monroe, who we learn is Norma Jean um, as she's raised. But instead of it feeling like a movie, I saw it as a fantasy and being like a nightmare where we saw Monroe sexualized constantly, um, assaulted. And um, I'm not sure if the word is like uh, perverse or or what I'm thinking of, but I just see like the attack on her character again and again throughout this movie where I just feel like it blindsided me compared to my expectations going in. Mine were going in that for one, um, celebrating Ana de Armas going through, you know, rounds and or waves and waves of casting where I felt like this was a major, you know, message to be shared, or I'm sorry, major like headline to be shared. The fact that Armas was going to be playing Marilyn Monroe, I thought was like big picture stuff. And then when we got closer and closer, I imagined it being, you know, an iterance where I can understand Monroe beyond the I, the iconic kind of pictures that I've seen of her or like hell, like the, the kind of artwork that comes out of someone like Monroe, the scandals that I've heard about or that I've read about. I never really truly understood who Marilyn Monroe was like for one, I'm sorry. I thought that was her, actually her name. Like it, stuff like that. Didn't just, it didn't make me, uh, wonder when I heard about Marilyn Monroe, you know, it's details about her life never kind of came past the character. I think that was my expectation going in. It's just kind of understanding her more as a person. This movie does not let you understand her more as a person. It, it gives you kind of a insight into her life where she is constantly like in pursuit of something that will bring her happiness and joy and stardom. 
and then only for it to be like a, a revolving door. So as she goes through it, it like slaps her on her way out because it, it's just time and time again, you see the type of uh, mistreatment she endured throughout her early and mid and late career. So Brandon, why don't we start off with the discussion of your expectations going in and how they were really met or how they were not at all? Well, like you said, it, it was a couple of things. It was, you know, it was Ana de Armas playing Marilyn Monroe. How glorious could that be? You know, coming off of, you know, Knives Out and No Time to Die and War Dogs and like all these movies, like she's becoming a rising star. She could easily handle this. She's talented enough. It was also the return of Andrew Dominic in the director's chair, who hasn't directed a feature film in a decade since Killing Them Softly. He's done a couple of um, uh, documentaries and thinking music videos since, but pretty fairly accomplished. You probably know him best from the work from uh, Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And that was fascinating for a couple of reasons, obviously. But then the buzz coming out of Venice, and a lot of it was what I kind of expected, which is that a lot of people were saying Ana de Armas was great. It got a standing ovation because every movie at Venice gets a standing ovation. And then a lot of the dark stuff started coming out about how manipulative it was and how discerning to Marilyn's legacy it was and just how icky and exploitative and disservicing it was to the legacy of a real person fictionalized an account that was made only more thinly veiled as the movie makes it out to be. So I was curious to go into that. I really don't like this movie. And the more that I think about, this is going to sound like a weird term, the gaslightiness of it all. It's a movie that I think for so long, you were mentioning the idea of like, oh, I never learned more about Marilyn Monroe's story or like the personality of her details. And the movie kind of insisted it's doing that. Like between between some of the backstory with her and her mother, between the stuff with her and Arthur Miller, between all these things that keep coming up, it tricks you into thinking that it's, and the runtime, which this thing is almost three hours long, it it somehow tries to convince you that like, this is Marilyn Monroe. This is her pain and her trauma. And you need to see this to, you know, explain who she is. But that's a part of that, that is bloated and expanded. And just, as you mentioned perfectly, perverted. It feels like a perverted telling of this that just is insisting that like, this is art and this is passion. I'm like, I'm sorry, maybe it is art. Maybe it is fantasy, but it's bad art. The only reason it got a standing ovation is because the audience needed something to do with their legs after sitting for nearly three hours. That is an insult to myself, but everyone else too, because how are we going to sit through two hours and 46 minutes of something that just begs the question for me, why over and over for me, there was no real struggle. I was having to love or hate this movie after maybe half an hour in and three d- disturbing sex scenes in, I was just letting it play because I needed, I knew for one, of course we're going to talk about it on the pod. I got to knock, I got to knock this stuff out from my baby plot devices pod. But for two, I, you know, watching a movie, it, it's, it takes a lot for me to turn off a movie midway through and say, I don't want to return to this. Have I done it? Handful of times, but blonde just felt like something I thought there, there might be something to you know what? There's nothing to gain here, but let me watch it. That's how it felt. Things of note from Blonde is they have this, they have this multiple environments where we're in like grand theater settings where Monroe has all of her films premiered. And what I found to be significant in these scenes, you know, when they weren't showing, you know, just like sex, sex in the theater was when we have these large, like very grand looking spaces. And it looks like they filled them up with real people. Like uh, have I, I haven't done the, the fact checking work to see if any like, you know, uh, CGI was made to like multiply faces or whatever. But I highly doubt that they would do that because they look really well. And I, I become impressed when I see a 
collection of bodies like that be able to move together. And that's credit, yes, to Dominic's direction. Um, and it's one of the few things that I found myself going, oh, this is neat. And I'm surprised that I found that in a movie like Blonde. Um, while it does have some neat camera tricks and I think um, transitions, it mostly remains as like a black and white picture, maybe to like pay towards the whole, like you, like we mentioned, like fantasy or like the dream kind of feeling of it all. Uh, did you find that like more so technical details that you appreciated throughout the film? Oh yeah. Like I, I will reiterate what some people were saying. I, I don't know who the production designer is, but like there is a grandiosity to the movie. You mentioned the theater scenes, but also like the kind of, there's a moment when she and Cassinetti are driving around and they see like a pinup of her that's like, a mile high or something like that and it feels huge like you get the sense of like what hollywood was at that time and there are moments like that like chase Irvin shoots this thing really gloriously like i've heard some people describe it as like instagram filter the movie and they're not wrong but there is some like really glorious stuff in there even if the color change gets exasperating we'll talk about it um ana de armas is great you mentioned um whatchamacallit you mentioned some of the sex scene stuff there is one sex scene that I think works in this, and it's the one between her, Cass, and Eddie, which is the threesome between them, when the movie kind of does this thing where it kind of becomes this wavy, water-like thing where they all kind of mesh together, transitions to, like, going to Niagara Falls, where, like, it's a contrast between, like, the thing of nature that's meant to be seen versus uh, Maryland. That was kind of a cool thing, but that's the only moment that I could find. Brandon, that transition of her on the bed and then it becomes Niagara Falls, that was beautiful. That was cool. I think if they would have... I think they would have shown a different, or they would have, I guess, pitched a different movie to audiences if they included that in the trailer. It might have revealed their best transition, but even then, I was, I was so impressed by that. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, There's also, and if we're talking about good scenes, I also want to bring up the first time that she sits down with Arthur Miller when they're at a cafe and talking about, um, oh God, the play that he's working on, forgive me. It's with Magda, right? Magda, yes. Um, and like, we actually get to see Marilyn's intelligence and her literacy and Arthur is just taken aback by like, oh my God, this Hollywood starlet actually knows her stuff. And like, yes, that, that's the point. Hi, Andrew Dominic. What are you doing? Uh, but I found that scene really compelling as well. When we talk about how, um, like how well Armas really, uh, embodied Monroe or Norma Jean, I wanted to have a, a short discussion on how Marilyn Monroe and Monroe's creator in Norma Jean is more of a means to an end. Like that's how I am reading it because Monroe in this film does not say no to uncomfortable or like abusive circumstances. She's kind of a vehicle for Norma to get the stardom and renown that she's always sought. And I think that it, it takes a strong performer to really draw the divide. And I did see it in certain conversations that uh, Norma Jean would have on the phone where she's describing that Monroe is hers. Like it's somebody, it's not who she is, but it's somebody she sees herself transform into by the end. It's, it's a very interesting, I think like study, if you just look at the distinction between Norma Jean and Monroe based off of this performance. Uh, but I found that to be something that I was intrigued by and, and constantly looking out for. She is not given a ton to do. That being said, as a performer, she completely inhibits herself in this role. Like, there are at least a half a dozen times, especially in the second half, it was a completely lived-in performance for what it is meant to be. Um, the actual substance behind it is a bit of a question mark. And I also question Andre Armas, who said in an interview, like, this is the most feminist telling of Marilyn Monroe she's heard. Um, I vehemently disagree. But as a performer, she completely commits herself to Dominic's vision of, this is a woman who was through so much at such an early age and just kept on that track. It, as far as this version goes, not the original Marilyn, but like where Norma Jean came from, where Marilyn Monroe goes, 
and I don't know for sure. I, again, please, someone correct me if I'm wrong on our social medias, if Marilyn Monroe had any issues with DID or dissociative personality or anything. I don't know for sure, but the movie kind of tries to make a point of it. And then we get into like the color grading, the aspect ratio, it all kind of falls apart. But as far as just Armas as a whole, yeah, she's pretty great in this. This movie's two hours and 47 minutes. We've said it. I'll say it again. I'll beat the point to death. I don't care. For me, it does lose its uh, momentum. We check in with Monroe's character based off of the relationships that she has, you know, the type of family that she's expecting to, um, you know, create and then having it fall apart again and again and again. So when for you did that just feel like we were at any point we were going to reach the end? At least a couple of times, like there's the point right before she has the second miscarriage on the beach. Uh, that was, I thought, where you could have an ending. There's a point where right after she meets up with JFK, which, by the way, I don't think actually happened. Um, like that, ha- that whole thing transpires. And I thought that was going to be like the dark, twisted ending. Uh, and then actually like the actual proper ending. There was the thing where I thought happens. And there was another like one or two minutes of screen time. And I thought, oh, you're just doing this. Uh, and there's a lot of points in the movie where I felt like it's just going for it. And what it's going for is just keeping you enthralled in the trauma. And that can only go so far. Going back to your CG comment, the CG baby is weird and unnecessary and fictionalized. And it does not have any place in this. And it just drives home the point that this is a movie that is not only trying to make the trauma of Marilyn intimate and exposed to, but also just adding more stuff in to make it more so, which again, a movie this dark and twisted does not have to be over two and a half hours. And you mentioned the, and like, I know some people mentioned the art, the idea of like, well, good art is supposed to challenge you. It's supposed to make you feel bad. It's supposed to challenge your expectations. And I get that from a certain point of view, not when it contains, you know, multiple rape and assault scenes that go on when it includes multiple associations of, you know, public shame and discourse that go on for too long. And when it doesn't give either Norma or Marilyn the actual framing of being, for lack of a better word, competent it almost kind of shames her going back to the baby situation of being like, oh, you couldn't take care of kids because your mom could. No, she couldn't because of her health. Like there, there were different things. And it, those things just pile up more and more and more, especially as we get into the third act where one of the people who she trusts the most completely, in my mind, betrays her and just kind of undermines the sense of, oh, so she just had no security. She just go home and, you know, be by herself and suffer. Yes, I think we need to wrap this discussion and we move really on do. to... I didn't entirely know Monroe's legacy or history prior to this film. And afterwards, you know, walking away, I am leaving with the notion that she was severely mistreated, manipulated, and always misrepresented by those that spoke for her. This film does the same. And so for that reason, this film's very low for me. It's a three out of 10. I'll go to a four because I do actually think that there are some good things in this movie. They Armas is completely committed. I will actually say that some of the supporting cast are as well. I like Adrian Bodie at certain points. I think Chase Servant's cinematography is great. I think the costumes are glorious. I think there is a semblance of grandiosity. And dare I say it, there are even points at times where Marilyn that we see in the movie is represented as human and complex and able and capable of love as she is. That being said, it can still be criticized as bad art. And this is messy and deeply disturbing beyond just the actual historical implications. It's perverse and disorienting. And I know that that was the intention. I have no doubt that Dominic made the movie that he wanted to make. But I question why people like Brad Pitt and Dee Dee Gardner, who produced like 12 Years of Slave and Moonlight, and why people at Netflix would give them the resources to do something like this. If you are absolutely curious to see it, it is on Netflix. But Frankly, just don't. But if you are genuinely curious, there is stuff in there. I would not be shocked if, you know, if they are messed with cinematography or the costuming, get any sort of awards recognition. But otherwise, yeah, this is really not good, I don't think. Okay, spooky listeners, we are going to go into the horror harbor. 
echoey, like, lighthouse noise. Hey, oh, I like that, like, kind of, like, Hell's Ferryman. Like, we're branding it, but we don't know what it is yet. Okay. Playing for horror movies with Noah Hoosman. That is absolutely right, Mr. King Dutchman. We are going to do a double review. We is going to be me, myself, and all of the horror fans listening in. I'm going to be talking about Smile, and then immediately after, I will be providing a review for Goodnight Mommy. So, first things first, let's talk Smile. From Parker Finn, this is uh, a debut work in the horror space for this film, director and writer, and it has all the pieces of a terrifying story. Okay, Smile, maybe you've seen the trailer. If not, let me go ahead and provide a brief synopsis for you so you know what the heck I'm talking about. So this is from IMDb. After witnessing a bizarre traumatic incident involving a patient, Dr. Rose Cotter starts experiencing frightening occurrences that she can't explain. Rose must confront her troubling past in order to survive and escape her horrifying new reality. The trailer will show you that this film is called Smile because the shtick of it all is there is something haunting Dr. Rose Cotter and it follows her. It is invisible to everyone but the person it is afflicting, which in this case is Rose, uh, portrayed by Sosie Bacon. So she can see this entity of source or, or it appears to her in the form of anybody. You know, this is a shapeshifter. This is somebody, something that can take on the resemblance of a family member, a friend, a stranger in the street. You can see why this would be terrifying considering all the spaces that you go in your day to day life and not knowing whether somebody in the same room as you is actually someone or something hunting you, trying to kill you. Terrifying. Like I say, you've seen it before. Anybody seen It Follows? I see you. I recognize you. I love you. Surprising fact about this movie is that it is a debut from a director. Uh, Parker Finn previously had worked on shorts or is credited as such on IMDb. I was going to say, which this is a feature adaptation of Finn's short films, what I'm trying to say. Rose Cotter is being hunted by, like I said, like this doppelganger of sorts. And what she has to do to overcome it is, for one, work with her ex, who is a cop. His name is Joel, and he plays, or he's played by Kyle Gallner, as well as have these discussions about what she sees and um, why no one believes her with her partner in Jesse T. Usher, who you may know as A-Train from The Boys, who plays her boyfriend, Trevor. Um the two of them have sort of a relationship that is very hard or troublesome for them both to get through to one another. Um, it's not surprising when midway through you see it fall apart because them two are not people who have the best chemistry or compatibility um, when it comes to Cotter taking on a serious issue that does ring alarms for the mental health history of her family. Uh, we learn throughout the film that uh, Rose Cotter's mother also dealt with, you know, traumatizing incidents that then led to her death. When Rose's stress and fear starts to become heightened by this uh, entity that's hunting her, that's when we start getting into the flashback scenes that tell us all that you need to know about Cotter, about Rose's history um, with her mother and, and some of the trauma that she endured and how she can possibly overcome this evil. What did I think about Smile? For one, hilarious title. I think that I look at a title like this and it makes me go... This is dangerous because immediately all it makes me think is that this is your one gimmick for scares is having uh, the random characters that you have being this, you know, shapeshifter looking directly into the camera, you know, being focused on intensely and having them just do a smile before something evil happens, I guess. Uh, it happens once. It happens twice. By the, time it, by the time it comes around the third time, you kind of know the rules for what is going to follow. And I think that that's unfortunate because the journey into Rose 
and her as a singular character, singular point of focus, it's a lot more interesting than losing yourself in the scares that come along with the smiling entity. So do I think that this film suffers from a confusing title? Yes. I Confusing is the wrong word, a misleading title. The amount of times we experience the confrontations between the shapeshifter, that's what I'm calling it, and Rose is minimal. I don't think that it's enough to warrant a title like Smile, which makes you think it's going to come around every single corner. I mean, this is, after all, a shapeshifter that can be anyone. So it pained me when throughout the film, we only saw, um, we saw it hand, we saw it happen on a handful of times. You can count them on your hands if you watch this movie. Now I did go to see this movie in theaters. Um, and it is, it is an experience when watching it in theaters. It is, uh, it is terrifying. It is scary. It has plenty of jumps in there to really jolt you, um, as an audience member. I went with a small group of friends and they walked out shaking because they said this was possibly their favorite horror, um, of this year. We've had a lot of great horrors and they call me out for liking Scream. Hey, is there any other fans of the Scream reboot listening? Let me know. I can't be the only one. Uh, I think just to just to wrap the discussion on Smile. Um, yes, you're going to get a spook. Yes, you're going to get a nice spooky film um, in the October month. Will it will it hit the nail on the head for uh, you know most cohesive storytelling um, or you know at all like surprise from this? Unfortunately, you know. My answer is no. I think I've seen the pieces of this movie before and I've seen it done better. Uh, it has a final encounter that I will say is jarring enough to stay in my head probably for a couple more weeks. But outside of that, I think that this is a familiar story that you might have already seen. But if you're in the mood for a good scare, um, I think it's well worth your time for the appreciator of horror in me and movies overall. This earns a five and a half out of 10. I want to ask you the question about a director taking the approach of, you know, confining themselves within a genre and this time a genre as specific as horror. And people can be very critical about horror. I mean, you've heard me. Uh, why do you think that directors may, you know, shoot themselves in that space? The first thing that came to mind for me was, uh, was James Wan because that because Saul was based on a short and then became officially, I'm not saying that uh, Parker Finn is like the equivalent, but, but it came to mind the same, but then you also like, you know, John Carpenter started in horror. Um, Guillermo del Toro obviously started in horror. So, like, there's that thing of like, why do directors take to that? I think I will. I won't say it's easy. Like, horror is not an easy genre, much in the same way that comedy is, because what scares us and what makes us laugh is so specific. But I think there's the idea of you can start from a baseline of the idea of the unknown or the idea of the dark and twisted, and kind of go from there. Much like you can with comedy, to be like, oh, I can start with what would make me funny and kind of branch out from there. I think. Those two ends of the spectrum are not easy, but they're more accessible to starting filmmakers who might be like, I don't know what exactly I want to do for the story, but I know what makes me feel a certain way, and I can put that on screen. Works for some amazingly. Get out. Oh, get and, out, totally. You know, drops the ball for some, and that's a smile for me. Was it scary? Yes. Did I love it? Ah. <laughs> but this actually this pertains to your your next film this was actually supposed to be on paramount plus originally but went to theaters because of apparently really strong test screenings obviously you would not been have been one of them but would you have preferred to just watch this at home yes i think that it, it becomes the most theatrical in the handful of scenes where we're literally locked on this character as they're smiling right toward you the audience and in those moments yeah it's it, it leaves you a little shaken this movie does have uh, strength behind those moments where you are just faced with the evil head on. And that's the strongest part. 
we are now going to transition over to the streaming space. We are talking Amazon Prime videos. Good night, mommy. Uh, this is Naomi Watts and those twin little boys from Big Little Lies, who you may be familiar with, maybe not. Uh, but they come together in this chilling thriller about twin boys staying with their mother who has undergone some sort of surgery. Um, there's a shtick that the whole, you know, Naomi Watts' character, her face is all covered by this like re rejuvenating mask, like recovery mask. I don't know what to call it, but only her eye sockets and mouth are visible. Um, the plot really uh, starts thickens as the mother becomes increasingly aggressive with the kids and they get the notion, you know, they start whispering to each other, these twin boys that they possibly are being, you know, parented by an imposter. This doesn't, this figure in their home doesn't feel like the mother that they know. It doesn't feel familiar. It's uncanny. So what is it really that's beneath the surface? You know, she doesn't, act the way that they remember. And she has a few house rules. For example, you know, don't go into this part of the house. Um, stay away from this, you know, get, don't call your father, stay off your phone. And it, it's supposed to, you know, heighten your senses so that you feel there is something off going on here. Uh, does it land it? Hmm. We'll see. So Goodnight Mommy is actually an American remake of the 2014 Austrian horror film of the same name, Goodnight Mommy. Uh, you can actually stream that on Tubi. I wanted to plug that real quick. Uh, but I wanted to share that I've seen the original at a friend's recommendation. This was many, you know, not too many, but this was a years and years back where she wanted to show us a a film that really creeped her out and it was going to be subbed and we did, we paid no mind to that. So she threw it on and there is a Spoiler, there is a reveal that comes at the end of the film that I'm not going to spoil for you now, but that was done more effectively in the original. And it's, it's a question to audiences and, you know, familiars of the original of why did this have to happen for American audiences? You know, when there was already an iteration of this story that was really, you know, well done and got its own following. Why now do we feel the need to push an American remake? Well, one Polygon article writes that Naomi Watts is kind of like a remake scream queen because you'll remember she starred in The Ring, which is a remake of a of you know an, another picture, uh, possibly of the same name. I'm not really sure. Um, it's, uh, and, I, I think in Japanese it's Ringu. Thank you, Brandon. And the second film that she is has earned her this title is wait, Brandon, can you guess? Uh, is it The Grudge? Okay, ready? We're going to play this game of okay, they're yeah. in the house, they're held hostage, they have to escape their captors. Maybe you haven't seen it. Stranglers? Funny Games. Oh, okay, yeah, I had heard about this. So with her starring in The Ring and Funny Games, it's not surprising that she steps in for this remake of the Austrian horror film. Based on my viewing, I was not really on board with the mystery of it all. Like, they give her that, they give her that mask that they tease as being a cover-up for some kind of monstrous, you know, appearance underneath her skin and the long robes that she wears, but they only tease you with that because I think they don't want you to lose yourself into the potential creature feature that this story could turn into. And they want you to instead linger in the space of are, is the mother slowly losing her mind? Are these young boys completely in tune with reality? What really is happening in this household and how fast can we get to that reveal? They're kids, they're unreliable narrators, um, they're twins. So there's like a creepy factor that's supposed to come along with the kids. But these kids, I think, are just too, uh, 
adorable is the wrong word because I mean, they're not like super cute, like little kids, but I don't know. I just found myself not really scared for them. Like I, <laughs> if that makes sense, like the way that they were describing their situations, they're twin boys. So they have a lot of their back and forth. Like what's mom doing? Like, Oh my gosh, mom. And I instead kind of got like, it felt like I was just watching two boys get creeped out by this figure that they believe is not their mother. Um, when really it's supposed to be like bone chilling, like this needs to be, who is this monster in my house? And why are you wearing my mother's face? It doesn't really reach that point. So it's unfortunate. Um, honestly, I want y'all to take your time with this. If you've experienced the original, you might be better off just replaying that movie. This is a four and a half out of 10 for me. Uh, the stuff that they set up with, you know, Watts's look as this mother or the boys, um, you know, creeping towards the truth, I think kind of misses, mostly just misses the mark. So uh, if you're looking for that, uh, that, that chilling tale between the two that I rated, I think that you're better off seeing Smile. And it's going to leave you more with a sense of, you know, you'll be shaken after you see that based on the scares that were included. Whereas Goodnight Mommy, you're more, you're more so be like, damn, that was pretty freaky. And that leaves only one movie left for our movie review segment. And it is all about the, not Super Mario, but bros all the same. As marketed by Universal, the first uh, mainstream LGBT rom-com, much in the vein of, you know, Big Sick or When Harry Met Sally or all your favorite rom-coms. Uh, this is directed by Nicholas Stoller, who did the Neighbors movies, who did Forgetting to Sarah Marshall. That could actually make for a pretty interesting DD at some points. Uh, co-written by him and Billy Eichner from, of course, Billy on the Street, from American Horror Story, from a bunch of other things. We follow Billy as the completely different character of Bobby Lieber, uh, a podcast host hosting, I think it's called The 11th Brick. It's called The 11th Brick because it's like the sixth brick was thrown by... Right, uh, by a straight white man. Yes. This is a comedy, by the way. Um, it, it's a romantic comedy. So we follow Bobby. He's uh, in New York. He's working as a podcast host. He's also working as a member of the board of the first ever LGBTQ plus history museum in Manhattan. One day at the club, he comes across Aaron, played by Hallmark hubby Luke McFarlane. Aaron is very much more straight passing gay. Like his favorite artist is Garth Brooks. He, you know, is very muscular. He kind of hangs around with all the baseball bros from kind of small town America. He and Bobby kind of hit it off. They have an interesting relationship. They kind of go back and forth. Eventually, we start to see the kind of seeds of that start to grow. We see Aaron's kind of hesitancy to being embraced by the queer community. We see Bobby trying to somehow open this museum because everything kind of goes wrong. We have some great guest stars who pop in and kind of make things more complicated than that. But it is truly at its core a rom-com between Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane. And what exactly do we need to do to get to that point of will they, won't they, will they, uh, can they actually survive as a couple? Noah, this was getting marketed pretty heavily. It unfortunately did not do great at the box office. I personally think that's kind of a crime. Are you on the same page? Brandon, going into this, I was like, what the, what's going on on my feeds? Why are people saying that like, oh, it's no surprise. Nobody wants to go see Billy yeah. Eichner in this new rom-com, which I'm like, yeah, you know, it's our first, like, it's not our first, sorry. It's our latest, like, gay rom-com big screen picture. Woohoo! Were you a Billy on the Street fan? So-so. Okay, because I love Billy on the Street, so. And who are we focusing on? That's right. No men of color. Yeah. <laughs> like, two <laughs> white dudes. Yay. Let me just I, jump I was going to say, we, we made the joke last week of just like, okay, pitch free. It's a romantic comedy, and the leads are cis white people. 
you know what? Let's appeal to the minorities. Let's make them gay. Yes. Um, it's a bummer that that was the reaction on all my feeds because it set me up for a movie that I think I did not experience. I'm coming out of bros and watching it, you know, uh, very recently a fan. I think that I actually walked out like having laughed throughout the film, having, you know, smiled at parts, having felt that kind of warmth, fuzzy feeling in my chest when I see gay people in love. Um, and this movie, it, you know, to its credit, I think that Billy Eichner create, like wrote a very hilarious and relatable script for members of the queer community. Um, of course, it's not going to appeal to every member or speak for every member of the queer space, but I am thankful for the parts that I felt um, were familiar. And I was, I had one scare, I guess, or I guess one um, concern. And that was, I would hate to see, you know, with the look of the jock that is Aaron or, you know, in the trailer, seeing these two, um, you know, Billy Eichner, he's not out of shape. Like he's kind of, he's still like built, like he has a nice body and to see them, you know, do the whole wrestling and then they end up making out on the park. It just makes me go, oh my gosh, yawn. Like, I don't want to see my members of the queer community, these gay men, be reduced to the stereotypical kind of like cutouts of what gay men can be and who they are. Um, parts of the film that I really admired were anytime we had discussions for the round table, which was, um, you know, uh, T.S. Madison co- ch- comes in, Dot Mary Jones. Um, I believe uh, Jim Rash is here credited. And I think that he is the bisexual in the room. And I just love their banter of, you know, speaking on behalf of the lesbians or the trans community or the bisexuals and all of that kind of like back and forth was so uh, comical to me that I, I really was like rolling while I, while any of those scenes were going on. Um, this film I think does tell a does tell the kind of hallmarky love story that is probably familiar for someone like Luke McFarlane. But I'm so happy that now I have one where I can turn on and enjoy, even if it is um, less, I guess, like uh, groundbreaking. It was still very enjoyable for me. Yeah, when this comes on Peacock, I am 100% rewatching this. I will probably watch it in theaters at some point, not to bury the lead. I really like this movie. Right from the very beginning, it kind of goes like, we know you're expecting this to be flaunty and out there and like in tune with like the Gary stereotypes, you know. And very quickly, Billy Eichner, I think very, and Nicholas Storer to his credit as well, very quickly kind of go like, structure what you know, but there's going to be a lot of nuances that maybe, you know, a lot of the majority straight audiences are not going to get, i.e. myself, because I'm not the straight as white man. And to me, I found a lot to like about this, like beyond the fact that Luke McFarlane and Billy Eichner are super charming together. I really found their chemistry really palpable. I I wasn't sure of it at first because, again, Luke is so... Aaron, is, as a character, is so kind of in his own head. He doesn't really know how to interact in certain social spaces, gay or otherwise. But once they actually kind of get a reprieve with each other, it kind of becomes this really cute back and forth that Bobby is taking more of the lead on, but Aaron is kind of taking more of a cultural perspective from about. And then once there is that humanistic angle, it really does make a lot of sense. You mentioned a lot of the guest stars like T.S. Madison, Guillermo Diaz. Uh, Guy Brennan as uh, the club owner is great. Um, and I won't spoil some of the others, but there are some really great surprises that pop in there that kind of shake everything up. But again, like just as a love story, it works. I learned actually a lot about queer history because the movie kind of takes a bit of an educational approach about the whole thing. Like the museum is a plot point, but it's also a way to kind of bring audiences, again, majorities to straight audiences into the fray of just like, there is so much about queer history that is not taught, that is not given to queer people to tell their own stories and this film is at least an avenue to do so so 
Again, it's not the greatest approach to take. There is absolutely more to be done in that space. But I think just as a start, yeah, this is super fun. Another thing that I really admired about uh, Eichner's involvement in the script or just the script writers in whole, this this understanding that like our messages that we express from the queer community of love is love. And, you know, everybody, you know, we all have our ways of loving. And then he goes on in the film to say, that's not true. That was just so you all could accept it. <laughs> I love that line. He goes on to say that, you know, the... Uh, <laughs> members of the queer community, yes, love is love, but we don't love the same. Like, and we don't, um, our relationships don't operate the same. Our sexual relationships don't operate the same. And so instances where we then see how Bobby is traversing the single um, world and dating and now crushing with Aaron and then eventually seeing, you know, what the future of their relationship looks like. I found all to be very particular for, um, for queer members. So, or for queer individuals. And so I liked seeing that with such relatability, you know, for, for some, I will say there is a negative and it's unfortunate that I'm going to say it, but I'm going to say it. Bobby, Billy Eichner as Bobby, the character's kind of just, uh, I think he's kind of, he becomes one note throughout after. That's fair. Would you say so, Brandon? His intensity and his, you know, vigorosity when it comes to, expressing his ideas, I don't think come across as um, unnecessary or I guess like overbearing, but what does come across as overbearing is how insistent he is on like him. He's kind of a downer. And I think that that's um, upsetting to the experience because you, you, you see these two characters and you see how they can be lovable. But as the, as like the rom-com tropes start to settle in, Bobby then becomes like very, um, insecure and like he doesn't really defend himself in a way that I read is like he came across as annoying. That was my experience. I realized that there was a part of this film. I think it's in the it's in the second half, of course, where there's strife in the relationship and they have to both kind of separate to their own thing before they realize are they the one piece missing in each other's lives? Ooh, who knows? But the suspense that window where the two characters really have to under like come back to their independence and like busy themselves with side projects before they possibly get back together is a moment of rom-coms that I think I just get so like, it becomes so slow for me because I'm thinking about other rom-coms like in fire Island, I think. And it's a familiar moment where I'm just like, you know what? This isn't a negative for a particular movie. I think that's just a negative for me as an audience of rom-coms. Like there's that window where I'm just like, I live so much in that happiness in those early periods that once we get to that part of the story, I go, damn, like, and it gets me every single time. But again, like, I think that's good for the characters to have a moment where we can see what they're like together. We can see what they take away and then realize, no, we still have more to learn from. Like, it's still a cliche, but it's kind of a thing that I think benefits both Bobby and Aaron as characters. And I'm so glad you brought up the Fire Island comparison. I've been waiting to say it. Uh, Fire Island is amazing. We reviewed it on the show. You should all go watch it. And I think I prefer it still slightly over this in that I, for one thing, I laughed more like bros is fantastic, but I laughed a bit more consistently Fire Island. And I think the subtext around it, specifically the dimension of queer people of color, which this film just doesn't really tackle that much. I think that's much more interesting than what bros is trying to do. But again, they're very different films. They're trying very different things, but I, I'm glad you brought it up. Brandon, there's a portion of the film where <laughs> uh, Bobby is tasked with creating, we're looking for a Hollywood big budget movie about a gay, they want a gay couple to be represented in like big blockbuster or something like that. Like he's at, he has a meeting with like a producer. And so did you think that that's how the meeting for this film went where they wanted to create something that had massive, you know, 
overall appeal for various audiences. And so that's why it wasn't as strong in its representation, its themes that we, we've seen in other better queer stories. Well, obviously it went a bit better because we saw the actual film. So that's part of it. But I do also think like you mentioned the thing of like when there, you know, see other queer movies and then see this, like when you get back to it, I think it's the opposite. Like, unfortunately, this didn't do so great in theaters and that might be to it. Uh, Danielle Solzman, actually, who I admire incredibly, she had a great point about the idea of comedy since the pandemic began of kind of shifted focus. Like there's that idea of I don't need to go to a theater to you know laugh. I can have a good time with like my family or my friends at home. I think that might have had a part to play in it. But I think if you are like part of those like incredibly cis white male audiences, you might want to see this because I think it is such a great starter point. It does have a lot of the tropes you might be familiar with, but it does so in like a really, for one, educational, but also like really interesting, clever and really raunchy kind of way that just kind of gets into your headspace a little bit. So I would love to see like how much of that correlates to the actual meaning because that that whole love is love line we mentioned at the beginning, that really stuck of just like, oh yeah, there's so many nuances that like big mainstream Hollywood producers probably wouldn't get about this. But at the same time, it obviously went better. Also, romantic, bisexual, Abe Lincoln, what? I actually don't know, and I really want to know if it is. Mm. Plot devices, plot. Oh, I can't think of one. Okay, my bad. I was thinking of a pun. Plot devices. Plot devices, yes! I love that. I love that, Brandon. Okay, uh, I kind of have, like, short notes uh, for the rap, for the rap of our discussion, and that's for one, Orville Peck kind of comes in with a song towards the end of the, yes. towards the end of the film. God, am I, am I an Orville Peck fan? So I just wanted to say, I hear you. And for fans out there or for new fans that are going to check him out, uh, Bronco is a beautiful album. Please go check out work from that is just one amazing, uh, queer artist that I wanted to highlight, uh, during this review. And secondly, is staying on the topic of a country song. Brandon, was the song needed at the end? Did you love the song? Did you hate the song? What did you think about the song? I thought it was cute, which is like a lot of what I think about this movie, but like it works. It goes to kind of like what they've been building up throughout the whole thing. Uh, and it leads to a really great kind of twist of the, uh, uh, twist of the trope towards the very end. So I was fine with it. You know, you think of the Zach Efron movie. Oh my gosh. What's his rom-com movie with Miles Teller? That awkward moment. That awkward moment. My Sorry. apologies. We have the same instance is that the song serves to be the point where Bobby is able to express his heart as openly and as vulnerable as he can in front of his community of the museum appreciators or investors or his family or whoever shows up to that event and having Aaron be the one audience member who is able to receive that message and really act upon it. You've seen it before in rom-coms and I think that the song serves its purpose well there. But while Billy, when Billy Eichner started singing, I was kind of just like, Oh boy, here we go. I've heard some people think it could be nominated for the uh, Best Original Song Oscar, and if it's up there along with Not Too Not Too, ha-ha, tie back to the original show, I would be all for it. Brandon, do you have any final notes before we deliver our ratings here? No, I'm perfectly comfortable going into it. Uh, You know, this is a really solid eight for me. I had a really fun time doing this. Again, if we're comparing it as we have to, to, you know, fire all another queer rom-coms, it doesn't do that much to reinvent the wheel. It isn't, you know, uh, it isn't that inclusive, although it tries to be. It isn't that clever, although it tries to be. But what it is, is cute and fun and really satisfying as a rom-com. I think the leads both have great uh, chemistry. I didn't mention before, I like Mark Shaman's score, which kind of props up the whole uh, tweeness of the New York scene and that kind of vibe. Um, and again, like when it needs to be, you know, kind of when it needs to take the sad turn, it does. But then it comes back to it. 
It's what you think it might be, but there's just a bit more under the surface that I think if you dig under it, you might get a better appreciation for why these films are so dime a dozen and maybe appreciate why we need more of them. And again, if you haven't seen them in theaters, go like take your friends, have a good time, laugh, you know, be charmed by the whole thing because it is all of those things. This is a seven out of 10 for me. Okay. I, I think that I went into bros expecting to kind of just like cringe the entire time and like cross my legs and go, ooh, what am I about to get into? But instead, I really got a uh, a fond story about these two men who have their own boundaries of what they're comfortable with uh, before and maybe during a relationship. And to see those kind of juggled in the familiar style of a rom-com was just something I was on board with from the start. Uh, it moves very quickly. It's an hour and 55, but I did not find myself uh, experiencing like a dull or a lull kind of moment in the middle of it. Uh, do I think that there are other films well worth your time before you experience bros. Absolutely. And I'm going to name them right now. So Netflix, check out Heartstopper, baby. You know it. You love it. You adore it. At least I do. Highlighting another film where their lead actually shows up in this is Bowen Yang. And I'm, he shows up in bros as like this famous investor that they kind of have to swoon. That way they get onto their side and that they um, end up investing in the museum. It's nice to see Yang after we've seen him in the amazing Fire Island, which I also wanted to highlight. And then the two titles, I'll just deliver them here, are Christmas titles that I do still want you to watch. It is Kristen Stewart's Happiest Season. I know you need to check that one out, especially as we approach the holiday season. And the second is Single All the Way. I think that these are all excellent queer stories. The fact that they are can, you know, be concise in a list like this um, at this time. I'm just so proud to have all these pictures available for me to watch and feel all the lovey-dovey feelings, especially when they're applied to uh, queer romances like so. Brandon's got a pretty fun segment for us to wrap today's episode with entering the spooktober season. So I'll leave it to him to introduce and we'll get right along. Noah, it's Halloween. We like to, you know, be in spooky mood, at least, you know, some of us, i.e. not me. Um, let's go into it. What are your, some of your uh, go-to Halloween memories that you always go back to, either as a kid or, you know, as the, as the adult that we all are? There was a recent time in college where I believe my sophomore year, this is very, I was very much in the space of, I'm a good will Halloween costume maker, right? I've done that for Han Solo. I've done that for, eh, you name the character. But I tried to do it for this Disney character we all may know and love, Aladdin, a red plastic bowl on my head that I tied together with like some string under my neck so that I could have a little hat because I wanted to be Aladdin with the hat. So I go to this get together, this gathering of sorts, and I get misidentified. Somebody looks at me and they're like, I go, you know who I am, right? Like, you know who I am. And they look at me and they're like, Abu. Oh my gosh. Do y'all know who Abu is? Abu is Aladdin's monkey. So why did somebody think I was Aladdin's monkey? It, it, it befoggles me. If I wasn't wearing pants, I could be Abu because he's a freak and he doesn't wear pants. You know what? He actually might wear pants. I'm, I, don't quote me on that. But Noah says um, monkeys are freaks. Quote him on that. <laughs> the baboons are. We've all seen their butts. Okay, moving on, though. There are two iconic costumes. I call them iconic because my mom put them together. She created a spider costume for me to wear. And it's less of like a spider man. And if you've seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, it's man spider. <laughs> so my mom was able to like fill these black tubes socks with uh, cotton or extra material and then strung them underneath where my arms would be 
so that it looked like when I had my arms outstretched, I had eight arms and I had a top hat to go with it. I just felt like the coolest spider on the block. And I know that I was, I, it came fitted along with like some silly string that, um, I would just like spray on my sister <laughs> or the houses that we visited. And that was a ton of fun. And then my mom also would come and create my Riddler costume, you know, spray painting a suit green, uh, fitting it with a bunch of like, green like neon green question marks i believe there was a cane an old cane that she had a cardboard question mark um on top of again with like instead of a top hat i think it was like is it called a a bowl a bowler's cap like a bowl hat um those are the fond memories that come to mind i do love halloween um brandon please share what are some of your memories yeah despite the fact that i'm a wimp i also love halloween um and especially as a kid like the the celebrations around it all there's just a sense of like kind of do what you want, like have fun and just, you know, be merry about the whole thing that is supposed to be for Christmas. But I frankly like Halloween more than Christmas. Don't tell anyone. Uh, haha, I'm Jewish. Um, as far as like favorite costumes and memories and like that, I will always remember, uh, my elementary school and the kind of Halloween costume parade that we always have and seeing everyone's really weird takes on their costumes. Obviously we had like, you know, the couple dozen kids who got just like just the store bought flowers and star Wars costumes, stuff like that. And then you have the one guy who has like, the pre-made like transformer car costume. This was before the movies came out. So that was a big deal uh, for me. As far as costumes go, I've made some really weird ones. Like obviously I've done, you know, the stormtrooper one point I've done like the construction work when I was really little. I still love my Travis Barker outfit that I did. Yes. I dressed up as Travis Barker two years in a row and I'm still kind of proud of that costume. I did a very weird zombie pirate costume one point where I destroyed a pair of sweatpants that I had. That was a full trip. And then if you guys have been following me on on Instagram recently at the movie King 45, you know, in the last couple of years, I have done my pizza planet cosplay, which is the easiest costume known to man because it's just the pizza box that I covered with a, with a custom logo, pants, a black shirt and a hat. And I love it. And it's super simple, but I can't do it anymore because I've already done it two years in a row. Brandon, you asked me before we hopped on what my favorite Halloween candy was. So I want to share that whenever we opened our bags, myself and my older sister, she was primarily the person who I was trick-or-treating with in the early days of my childhood. And my little sister and my little brother were more so the ones that I was, I was then like took on, you know, the, the one who stands on the sidewalk while your sibling goes up to the door. And whenever we open our, our bags, even my little brother, even my younger siblings, I'll, I'll snatch their candy without asking. And it's going to be, you know, the Twixes are so, delicious right but when they come packaged even smaller and even more bite size i can eat 50 of them so it's a little three by three centimeter chocolates that are milky way snickers three musketeers uh twix give me a handful of them ah in my mouth like popcorn uh i love those tiny chocolates and around halloween time it just seems like they're everywhere so who cares if i just pop one or two and five minutes past three or four, five, six. I love those little chocolates. How about you, Brandon? And then you eat 10, you, your stomach goes, how many did you eat? And I just look at the ground and it's all wrappers. <laughs> <laughs> and you go, what have I done? Um, it's funny. You know what I always loved getting in my bag was gummies because everyone was giving out, you know, Twix and Three Musketeers and all the chocolate stuff. But whenever I'd get like, you know, either Welsh's fruit snacks or the Scooby-Doo fruit snacks and like I get some of those, like that would always be kind of a cool treat. But obviously like, for me, Twix is king. Um, I like getting like pretzels, like salty stuff, because it balances out all the flavor and everything. I will say I hated Whoppers. I still hate Whoppers. Well, I kind of wanted to be a hater too and be like, what was the worst? When you opened up your bag, what did you not want to see? So for you, it was Whoppers. Any others? One other that I really didn't care for. Let uh, me guess what it is. Yeah. Dots. 
I actually don't mind dots. Are you, Brandon? No, like the, the problem is the problem is my grandpa, rest in peace, was a dentist who got me basically hooked on the idea like dots are the worst thing ever, and so I didn't eat them for a long time. And so when you tried them, you thought, oh, this actually isn't it's mm, not bad. Okay. No, when I opened up my candy bag and I saw that I had dots, I thought, well, what do I do with these? <laughs> that was my brother with almond joys, and I go like, it's coconut. I love that. Honestly, same. Like if it was a what are the oh, Klondike bars? I don't know what it was, but wait, you got Klondike bars? Never, never. But you said almond joy, so I was trying to think of other like oh, coconut okay. based chocolates or you're candy. thinking um, uh, mounds, right? Possibly that. Um, but yeah, if it wasn't if it wasn't peanut butter chocolate or just chocolate in some form, I did love the sour Twizzlers. You know, when we started to get into that phase of candy handouts, um, and I appreciated those. But even if it was like nameless little like butterscotch candies, I still enjoyed those. I liked a lot of candy. Well, let's wrap this up with the reason that I obviously wanted to do the segment, which is our favorite Halloween TV shows and movies. And for me, I'll start with just the two that I rewatch every year, like Clockwork. For one, uh, it's one of my favorite animated films of the decade, Paranorman from Leica. I can watch that film on repeat. I think it's just the right amount of scary, but also just deeply personal. It's also hilarious. And just the, the stop motion of Leica never ceases to amaze me. It just puts me in that great, like, kind of just on the cusp of winter kind of vibe. And I love the characters, everything about it. The other, and I actually did a review of this for ASU Odyssey, is, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Noah, is Underfist Halloween Bash. I've never heard of Underfist. Do you know The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy? Yes, of course. So Underfist was the spinoff that never was. They did an hour and a half long mega TV pilot pseudo TV movie for it with um, Irwin and uh, Hostel Gatto and like all the side characters kind of coming together and facing like gremlins and witches and candy monsters. I loved it as a kid. I will continue to skid out on whatever... Maybe not completely legal platforms I can find, uh, but it's just a perfect like hour and a half long sit down with a bag of candy, have fun Halloween type of movie. So what about you? What are some of your favorites? When I think about like the theme of Halloween within movies, especially being a horror fan, I'm surprised that none like immediately come to mind. So I actually needed to put some in front of me to think, you know, really what did I admire either growing up or even nowadays, like go back to time and time again, just for the, um, I don't know, like kind of the comfort of it all. You know, these are kind of comfort watches. So we had this on DVD growing up. Maybe we even overused it, but I watched The Haunted Mansion so many times and it never got old. There was never a quote that I felt I couldn't just extract and then just start repeating in day to day, like five minutes tops. And then uh, there's just so much in that film as well as like in the Disney ride that it just became a staple of my childhood. Uh, thinking about other familiar classics. I mean, uh, something like what I see here is like Gremlins and like Gremlins is a really good, like classic creature movie that I think is perfectly fitting if you wanted to put on something spooky for the Halloween time. I will also say really quickly, I did mention it. Uh, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. I have always been a fan of those. I have watched tons of them on repeat. Um, I have not really gotten to them in the last year or so, but at one point I want to like make a list and binge all of them at once because I feel like that'd be a really fun time. For anybody who hasn't experienced R.L. Stein's Goosebumps, come on. It is absolutely season for you to go check that out. Um, four seasons I'm reading are available to stream on Netflix. And I'm talking, of course, the 1995 TV show series, not the uh, Jack Black Goosebump reboot that they did it as a film uh, a little while back. Don't talk to me about Goosebumps because the dummy will still haunt my nightmares every once in a while. That being said, we're going to wrap up episode 37 of Plot Devices right here and now. Thank you so much for joining in on our inaugural Spooktober Plot Devices extravaganza. We'll be doing stuff like this all month, probably not more Halloween discussions, but stuff like and akin to it, along with more horror stuff from my co-host. Listen, while we've got you here, 
Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, at Plot Devices. That's where the show is. You can follow us there. You can leave a rating on there because it does help boost the algorithm for that. Let us know what you think. And let us know what you think specifically on social media, at Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. And our TikTok page has recently gone live as well, at Plot Devices Podcast, so if you want to check that out as well. I want to thank, of course, my spooky, scary, lovely human co-host, uh, Noah Guzman. Noah, what's going on in your life? What are you enjoying? And where can people follow you online? Follow me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting and uh, looking forward to generating some more content for our Spooktober season. And we'll see what plot devices can really dabble with to try and excite you further than just these full length episodes. Of course, and you guys can follow me as well on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. And if you want to follow my band, it's at Cablebox underscore music at Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. We have a gig coming up. Uh, at the end of the month, we'll have more details on that on the social media page, as well as our debut single, Wish, which is out on all audio platforms as we speak. All the information will be in our description as well, so go check that out if you're curious. So with that being said, for episode 37 of Plot Devices, from Noah Guzman, from myself, Brandon King, this has been Plot Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time.